Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And we are back for another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we are glad to be here. Another great topic on deck. I'm mm-hmm. your host, Kate Sadler. And with me in studio is my co-host, Charles Sadler. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yes, we are actually recording just after the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving. That put us in mind of food. It's a festive holiday built around food, family gathering together, friends, of course, to Mm -hmm. cook and eat food. And it's a harvest festival of sorts. We are thinking in terms of harvest and what we can do in the landscape to become a part of that cycle of planting and watching food develop and then harvesting it and enjoying it on our own table. And so we're talking edible gardens today. So Charles, you get requests quite a bit to incorporate edible gardens into your landscape design. And how do you go about doing that? How do you know when there is the sufficient space and resources to be doing something edible? And by the same token, what are the different varieties of edible garden that you then put in? Well, let's see, the, like the longest lived edible would be a fruit tree would be in that category. And then the shortest lived would be vegetables, herbs, things that you'd be planting annually in many climates. So that's really a question for the homeowner is what level of activity, what level of involvement do they want? On a fruit tree, it's generally when you read the description, it's five to seven years for it to bear fruit. If you buy a very mature one, it may bear it sooner, but there's a, but the tree has, there's an establishment period. So it's, I guess the, the the different filters it would go through is what food is of interest to the homeowner. So that's on the one hand, and then what could grow on their site is another. And then really the third question is what level of care maintenance are they willing to give it? And are there universal conditions that we think of when we think of maybe not just trees, but the items that would go in like a, a vegetable garden, a vegetable patch. Are veggies pretty much universally sun-loving? I, I can't think of much that would grow in shade. So correct me, what, what does that look like? Well, for many vegetables, berries, fruit trees, it, it's specified like full sun, which is generally six hours or more of sun. Some of the leafy vegetables, those like a little bit of shade like the lettuce family plants, but more or less you need a fair amount of sun for the plants to bear fruit. That reminds me of, I was talking with my nieces just this past holiday about the three sisters, which was a way of growing and supporting and shading a little bit the three foods by the Native Americans in, in North America. So the three sisters were beans, corn, and squash. Oh, right. And the corn would provide the structure and the squash would provide a little bit of shade with those leaves. And then the beans would provide, I guess, nitrogen back into the soil. Mm, Is that sounds about right? Yeah. The so beans there was would this, climb, right? And they would climb up the corn. So you need there, it's possible to have sort of like this, this little ecosystem that you're developing in your vegetable garden as you're planning it out. And certainly, as you mentioned, figuring out what food is of interest to you is so important. I, you know, eggplant 
grows really well in many places I've lived. Not a big fan, (laughs) unfortunately. Zucchini, great. Love it. But where we were living in New York, it ended up being too shaded and it was just completely overrun by slugs. I don't think too much water. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, they are somewhat fickle if you want to really yield, I guess, a good crop. Right. And you're really intending to eat this as part of your, your food source. Yeah, there's a learning curve, more or less. If it was an ornamental landscape that we took on, you know, where the client wanted to improve it, it's sort of the first year is you're diagnosing what are the issues. The second year, you're beginning to apply a different strategy. And then for it to, quote unquote, bear fruits like the third year. So with growing edibles, it's similar, but then you have the weather. The edible plants are even more sensitive to the weather. So certain weather could knock out all the blooms and then there'd be no fruit or vegetables. Or an ornamental plant is woody often. So it's not going to kill the plant. It might just have a year where it didn't look as great. Well, let's start there because there are edible plants that do also serve an ornamental purpose. Right. And so what are some of those that you might plant? So if you're not trying to convert your garden into an urban farm, <laughs> and you, <laughs> but you would like to go out and pick, you know, a lemon every now and again, something, if that's your climate, what are some of the ornamental slash edible plants and growing styles that we might consider? All the fruit trees, we do like a lot with espalier, where it's, that's a popular topic where it's a plant that's grown flat in a two-dimensional form instead of the branches coming out in all four directions or more or less just horizontal, or it could be grown like a candelabra where it grows just vertically. When our listeners will have heard us discuss espalier before, is it possible to get a good yield out of plants that are grown that way? It really is because you're, you're encouraging the fruiting and you're really, you're removing the what I like what I call the conspicuous growth. So it's what's left is mostly fruiting areas. Where when you have a full size tree, it's not practical to prune every branch. But when it's when it's quite controlled, when it's in an espalier form, I would say it's even it bears even more fruit. Now it takes time to establish. So it's very efficient. The amount of pruning and space is pretty minimal compared to the amount of fruit that you get. Okay. So another type of edible plant that for me kind of resonates in terms of ornamental and functional really is the herb family. Of course, mint, if you plant it, can go crazy and take over. So you want to be cautious (laughs) there. But I grew up in places where rosemary grew almost like a bush and was actually quite pretty. And and I think evergreen in the climate we were in Mm -hmm. in California, certainly lavender, which you can use in in desserts if you're so inclined, or teas. Um, So the herbs can certainly be grown in a way that is sort of effusive and they're somewhat hardy. What about designing herb gardens? Are there things to bear in mind? That's quite dependent on the weather. So if if it's a temperate climate where it's cold in the winter and and the soil stays wet, not too many herbs would be in favor of that. So, but if you're in a subtropics or areas where that are a little more arid, then that's very feasible. Herbs can be grown in containers and then you can control the drainage a little better. The sort of the enemy of many of the herbs is, is wet feet or staying soggy in the winter. And so in, in a temperate climate where you have freezing and thawing, they don't tend to survive too well. But a, 
but a raised bed or a lot, you can have quite a large planter and they do very well there. Well, and I recall one beautiful design we saw that had yet to be implemented, but it certainly seemed like it would be a a really clever idea was this herb spiral that actually did. So it was not just sort of like the, the corkscrew shape like planted with herbs, but it, I believe it was rising sort of in elevation. So I think that would meet the drainage criteria that you're talking about. I remember researching that for a special project. Yeah. So each part of the herb spiral would have, as the spiral, it was created with masonry. So imagine it's spiraling upward and there's a wall, which is retaining that soil as you go, as you climb upward. So the area is closer to the ground, which would be the spiral would be at its widest. That soil would stay moist the longest, was closest to the ground and the, that ambient moisture. And then as it climbed to the top, it would become the driest. So it was quite clever. I'm not sure in which country or culture that was developed, but I mean, the challenge with herbs, it's herbs that people use regularly in cooking and their cultural requirements. The moisture is very different. Uh, so the herb spiral, was quite unique that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the challenges of growing your own food is observing what we don't tend to have to observe when we go in the supermarket. So food and and it is also one of the reasons it's appealing to grow our own food because, you know, you talk about local consumption, it doesn't get more local than your backyard, but in some ways I myself have been conditioned to expect blueberries year-round or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or even bananas, which really Well, they grow here in Texas, but they would not have where we were living in New York. And so it's this idea that you're going to sort of abide by conditions. And yes, there's that question of what food appeals to you, but it's really then governed by the conditions that that food will grow in. And you really get Mm -hmm. to experience that local change and the local effect of kind of growing food at the right season and, and having it mature at the right time. And you know, it's just a special way to kind of appreciate your landscape is to have that landscape bear, literally bear fruit or bear vegetables for your consumption. So we've covered some of the practical considerations that you want to start out with as you're sort of envisioning your vegetable garden and where it's going to go in your landscape, if it's going to be incorporated into the design as an ornamental or be set aside so that it can exist in a space that has the right conditions, good drainage, plenty of sun. Where are some other places that we might gather garden inspiration? Well, you know, some places like that are really doing a, doing a great job with the edible landscape. Uh, one is uh, Stone Barns, which is in lower Westchester County. There's a f- fine dining restaurant, Blue Hill there, and then there's a cafe. So Stone Barns, it's a whole really center for agricultural education, research. There's classes for children. There's their products, their mulch and compost is available to the public. There's almost every facet from fine dining to education. And again, it's one of these sort of, I don't want to say it's a closed ecosystem, but it's almost that self-sustaining ecosystem where the pigs that they're raising are in the forest, you know, foraging the acorns that are there. And the mm-hmm. chickens that they have that are laying eggs are, the, are in these movable chicken coops that are fertilizing the fields. And so there's this I'm sure some items need to be introduced, but then you develop with your own composting, for example, which you can be doing with the byproducts of the food that you've grown in your garden. You can be recycling that into your garden and, and experience a sense of that, you know, cyclical nature, which is exciting. Oh, right. I mean, I think that's what you just described as permaculture, where it's 
it's plants working together. The one plant is decomposing and that's its nutrients for the next cycle. And then plants, like you said, like the three sisters, so they're growing in cooperation with each other, which might be uh, fending off pests. And so as you said before, in terms of planning, that is a part of maybe envisioning the level of work that you're interested in doing and setting up a system, a garden, a, a vegetable garden is almost a system that you are kind of feeding energy into and getting a product out of. And so you can think long-term and what would you like to see? How productive would you like it to be with its own little internal permaculture? That's kind of exciting. Right. You know, the scale of it, one client tests us for edible garden design and planning. It would be similar. If it was a gathering space, you would quiz them. How many people are going to use this with an edible garden? So people might think like, I want an acre of vegetable garden, which could feed, you know, dozens and dozens of people and would require a lot of work. Where if it was an acre of fruit trees, that might not require that much work. It might be annual pruning and some maintenance with, you know, some attention to pests. So the, like the level of attention, even a small, like a 10 by 10 square area can produce a lot of fruits and vegetables. And so that's, that's sort of part of the planning. And sort of drilling down on what people are interested in and then what would grow there. Some of the resources I think we'll add to the show notes will be these places where you can get inspired about growing your own food. I think one of the great success stories we might look to would be uh, the urban farming, the movement in Detroit, where vacant lots have been transformed into food production mm-hmm. zones. And, you know, I'm no expert on it, but we'll link to some of the information about that and you know give credit to the the folks there that are doing that amazing work that same type of urban agricultural enthusiasm is going on in brooklyn maybe other parts of new york city but i think it's called the grange which is this sort of landmark uh, rooftop garden where food is grown and then of course you got to visit the maybe I don't know if it was one of the first restaurant gardens. I think it may have been one one of the first. Um, I'm sure there are many around the world that have always had a garden to go with it. But here in the United States, out in California, in the Bay Area, Napa Valley, uh, French Laundry, of course, known around the world. And you got to visit that garden. Oh, right. There's a restaurant and there's the local road. And then there's what looks like a public park. But I believe the restaurant owned that. And it was beautiful lawn some type of edible trees, I think, and then a, quite a large vegetable garden, herb garden. And just seeing when I was visiting the chefs walking right across the street and cutting things, picking things, and the, the menu is really planned. And that same type of sort of ecosystem occurs in Union Square in New York City, where there's a farmer's market almost all year. And the chefs are there picking out what looks best. And then that's inspiring the menu. Well, and we've also seen up in parts of the Bronx and northern, like northern Manhattan, the green cart. So it's not just farmer's market down in Union Square that's catering to, you know, the foodies of lower Manhattan. (laughs) But the idea that we are, to some extent, with the efforts in Detroit or maybe out in Brooklyn, fighting food deserts and Mm -hmm. bringing fruit and vegetables into Areas where traditionally, recently, there has not been, you know, access to agriculture and where there's this dearth of these nutrients that Mm -hmm. are so essential for daily living. 
right. and the communities that benefit from them. So they have the little green cart and the fruits and vegetables. You can go up and buy them on any corner. All of this puts me in mind of an exciting development that we're putting together through mm-hmm. our um, landscape design firm, King Garden. And it's sort of in line with what we're doing with the podcast, which is we want to get information out there. A podcast is just a conversation between the two of us. And of course, whenever mm-hmm. we get feedback, it's exciting to respond to listeners and uh, you know provide information in the show notes so that hopefully we're giving good content and folks are being educated as they're being entertained. So that's the podcast. But we decided that we wanted to do sort of a longer format for honest to goodness education and Mm -hmm. get information out to garden enthusiasts and people interested in landscape design through our own website. So if you're interested in this concept of starting your own garden and not entirely sure where to start, the first course that we're offering is actually the How to Read series. This was put together with the help of our science advisor, and it is all about reading the seed packet. If you're going to start your vegetables from seed, reading the fertilizer label. We haven't even talked about fertilizer for vegetables and what they might need to grow mm-hmm. <laughs> big, you know, county fair size pumpkins and things like that. <laughs> also, how to read a pesticide label and a little bit of how to steer away from pesticides and look into integrated pest management. And then the last is plant tags. So you could either be starting your veggies from seed, or you could be buying the little tomato plant and then figuring out how to get it in the ground. And so it's a four-part lecture series with you know a little bit of self-assessment to help guide you through that process. And it's it is for beginners, you know, if you're really not sure what you're doing at a nursery, as I am not, <laughs> I rely on you on, on you for that. It's a great way to get introduced to this. So there's no reason not to start in your own patch of ground as long as you have the information to help you be successful. So yeah, And it's written in almost like another language. So That is true. Yeah. So like the it, how to read, it's like, really, is it that important? But I think it is a great way to kind of step people through the process. So this is through our online courses, which we're just rolling out. You can go to kinggardeninc.com forward slash landscape dash courses and take a look, see if you want to sign up. You know, we love connecting with those listeners out there who are interested. And if we can offer more, we're hopeful that it will be a success. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a plug for <laughs> something we're putting together. But if you're interested, we certainly welcome you to to check out the website and see if it's something you'd be interested in. And one of our first ornamental classes, I believe, is going to be boxwood, right? Boxwood pruning. That's thing. right. Yeah. We get a, a lot of questions. series of how-to videos and diagrams. And, a lot you know, of professionals so we, reach out to us for absolutely. info. Absolutely. So that'll be part of our master pruning series. But if you're interested in one-stop online garden education that is fun and informative, you know, scientifically informed, and certainly based on our experience in the landscape, then it might be a good fit for, for some of our listeners or anyone else who comes across it. So <laughs> I just wanted to put that information out there, especially as it relates to this idea of starting your own vegetable garden, because that for me, I think is the barrier. I get the seedling, as I said, the zucchini plant, and I throw it in the ground and then, you know, it's kind of a mushy mess by the time I'm done with it. <laughs> right. When I think vegetable garden, I think raised beds and I think rectangular raised beds for the most part. You're the landscape designer. Is there a way to do the structure of the vegetable garden 
So we're not just doing ornamentals, but so that the garden itself is sort of ornamental. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, the whole concept of a raised bed, that soil compaction is the enemy. Is it the enemy for all plants? Or for all just, plants. And so, oh. so for I mean, trees and shrubs, it's detrimental to them, but their roots are much more substantial. So a raised bed, particularly for fruits and vegetables, you want well-draining soil. So it's going to hold moisture, but it's not going to stay soggy. So a raised bed, by default, it's well-draining. And so if there's not a raised bed, which you want to till the soil, you want air, and you know, so it to be friable, that it's like very light and, fl- and, f- and fluffy soil, to keep it that way, having paving stones are, are a means to walk through the garden without walking on the soil. Oh, that's all good advice. And I guess that's helpful because if I think of a local farm, I think of the plants in the soil, but there is this like mounding effect that happens I think when the tilling is taking place and, and so right. you actually, it's almost like individual raised mounds that things mm-hmm. are being planted into. So that helps kind of or, like place the concept for me in terms of the, the raised bed. And then as you say, having the stepping stones, which actually could be a really lovely design feature, mm-hmm. step through your vegetable or bricks. I mean, bricks can be very, you know, like a nice historic recycled brick. Or I've even seen in, in some of the, the colonial gardens, or it could be a contemporary garden where they've used a blue stone, something that you would use as a as a flat paving stone. It's being stood on its side, so it, it forms like a wall, and that can be very ornamental. Different types of wood, stone, yeah, there's all kinds of nice solutions. It could be on a sloped hillside where there were retaining walls, and then it can spill out. You know, some of these plants like to spill whether it's uh, berries or, or vines or like there's a, the classic strawberry pot or planter, which has a terracotta and almost looks like, a, like an olive oil urn and there's holes in it. So there's many in some of these historic gardens, whether there's like an edible garden at Versailles and throughout you know, many cultures where, where the fruit is grown on a trellis and it hangs down, whether it's squash, or uh, I think at Prince Charles's property, there's a famous uh, fruit tunnel where it's it's fruit. It's I believe it's apples. So I'm not sure which is grown. It's espaliered into a tunnel-like shape that you walk under. That sounds really cool. So we'll try to link to that just so folks can get a, an idea of that image. So the we talked about the three sisters and how the corn is actually. An important element because it provides a structure and we're, we're talking about you know the materials that you might use to do your beds to make those aesthetically a part of your design vision and here you are mentioning the trellis and these overhanging fruit espalier so it sounds like structure is important and and how would that function with other elements of the vegetable garden without taking up a lot of space what the fruits and vegetables want is sunlight so there's horizontal where it takes up a lot of space to get sunlight. If you start to go vertical, there's still quite a bit of sunlight. Like if you think of a shrub, like an upright shrub, foliage on all three side on all four sides gets sun, it stays green. So by creating a support structure, which could be very decorative, you know, a pergola, a lattice, or it could be very utilitarian, just out of wood and like a wire, like a 
wire-like structure, wire fencing. So it can be quite basic. There's nice structures made out of bamboo often, which people grow uh, sweet peas and they climb up. The structure often gets covered by the edible food. So if it's an area that what you just see in the summer, the structure can be very basic. And there's all kinds of great guidelines on how to create structures. And then you're you're really increasing the square footage exponentially where you can grow something instead of like a, let's say like a trellis, which has sweet peas on it. It might take up maybe two feet wide and six feet long, but you have these walls which go up six feet too. So you're, you know, you're like quadrupling your square footage. Great. So we talked about compost briefly. Do you mulch vegetables or keep them kind of free and clear? Well, you can mulch to keep the weeds down. Mm. Depending if the ground receives sunlight, there's going to be weeds. If the ground is shaded, so that part of that permaculture, as I understand it, it would be a ground cover layer of plants, which could be edible, or it could just be a, like a utilitarian ground cover that would outcompete the weeds, and then the edible plant could grow up through that. Oh, there's your squash. Oh, right. <laughs> squash sister. That's going to shade. <laughs> that's going to produce a lot of shade. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Now, we did have a whole episode on welcoming wildlife. We love wildlife in our landscape, and we want to invite wildlife in. But wildlife likes vegetables almost as much, if not more, than we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do we do about deer and rabbits? And, you know, and I mean, birds, too. Bird, well, bird, oh, yeah, squirrels. Yeah, birds, yeah. Things will get in there and really eat the, my mother is constantly waging war against the little critters that get in and eat the baby, baby items that are not, you wouldn't, you as a human being would not really pull them off and add them to a salad, but you know, it's it, nature never sleeps. And so it's always out there to get them like right. just pre-ripened and then you're out of luck. You having the fencing when you, there's, you know, uh, online diagrams for this. So I mean, it would, be, it would be the same thing for like a dog kennel or you have a fence instead of it going to the ground, let's say the fence is six feet tall. It starts at the top and then you bury like the last foot of it or 18 inches of it is buried and then it curves outward. Oh, so away from the raised bed. Correct. So okay. when an animal was outside digging to try to get in and in that fencing, you'd want it to be very fine. Oh. Let's say like one inch by one inch square, something quite small. So what happens is the phenomenon, an animal digs, it hits the wire, and then it gives up. I see. So if, That's somewhat intensive, though, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's, it's, like it's the precaution, having the right amount of protection and fencing. So that's not needed for all structures, but, but more or less, you're going to want some kind of netting. I mean, it's different, the scale of the garden, too. So if it's a commercial field where there's 100 acres of corn, the deer probably get it and eat it, but there's so much corn. But if it's your own backyard and you have, let's say, 50 corn plants, if half of them get eaten, that's a lot, or maybe two thirds of them. So the sort of thinking of what you're growing, and there's research, you know, on this: what's likely to eat it, and then what protection do you take? And I generally steer clients in the direction of more protection. I mean, I tend to go overkill because. There's all this effort involved in the planting and the anticipation. And then if the plants get eaten, then you've lost a whole season. Well, and even with orchards, the planting of new trees, you tend, as as I recall, to put barriers around the trunks of the trees 
And then there's also in terms of talking about structure, providing stabilizing uh, oh, it's stakes. stakes and guidelines. Yes. Right. So <laughs> to keep it upright so that it doesn't from the wind. collapse. And and so even the even the sturdier plants, we're not just thinking lettuce leaves, but the sturdier edible plants need a, a lot of that as well. Right. Yeah. That they're I mean, there's plants are so vulnerable, really. Mm. These edible plants are pretty vulnerable. When you're growing them on a commercial scale, they're waiting years often for the plants to develop before they bear fruit. And there's there's enough inventory that there's always plants available. Right. So it's a, it's a cycle as opposed to waiting for your little patch to grow right. in what it's going to grow for that year. So, so, I mean, I always hear people, when you're growing your own food, there's a lot of failure with food growing. And so when you do it on a small scale, it's disappointing. So to, I try to steer people in the direction of being conservative, pick something that is a known entity that's quite easy to grow. And then try that out. Because as disappointing as it is when it doesn't work, there is nothing more pleasurable than picking something in your yard and like incorporating it in your food. So it's certainly worth it to to try to get through the hurdles. Mm -hmm. Now, another benefit to growing our own food is that for all intents and purposes, it can be as organic as we want it to be. Mm -hmm. We certainly do not have to put pesticide on it if we don't want to, or we can be really discerning about what we're picking and using to try to do pest management. But there is, you mentioned, I think in a previous episode, the concept of integrated pest management, where you are maybe encouraging ladybugs to go after the aphids as opposed to using a spray or something. Right. So there is a way to be basically a discerning consumer, but this might also feature into the research stage where you're thinking, Mm -hmm. I'd love to buy plant, you know, the fruit orchard, but which fruit trees are really intensively sprayed to get that perfect looking apple right, shiny the red supermarket apple. is really it's a little confusing like asparagus that's a popular food that's grown in there's just certain parts of the world where there's beneficial like very sandy soil and it's mounded up and that might be just one one region that all they grow is asparagus or there's a black dirt region which is it's uh, outside of new york city and they grow i think it's potato or onions maybe so the the soil that's provided it's generally not good for all plants and so but if you want to grow a variety you can amend the soil and then it's it's somewhat trial and error and there's local garden groups that's like like the master gardeners i mean certain plants like a cherry tomato the tomatoes are much smaller but it bears a lot more so it's a large tomato you could be waiting for it to become ripen and then an insect or something else could get it And that reminds me of a successful compost pile is often the source of volunteers and volunteers tend to be really, at least in my experience, because, you know, I killed the zucchini that I planted, but we had squash, we had tomatoes and they were growing from, you know, from having been sprouted in the compost pile and they were ready to go (laughs) (laughs) because they were the survivors, I guess. And so they're like, here we are. We're ready. And, and so that can be a fun part as well to see, you know, if you have a, a healthy, well-protected from, from, you know, invaders, but, but well-protected, healthy compost pile that can give you a lot of mileage as well. Mm-hmm. And then it's popular whether there's a, a community garden in your neighborhood or even neighbors adjacent to each other sharing a garden. It's, because it's, 
there's a fair amount of maintenance of care and attending to it if you're on vacation in the summer. So having or an extended family, maybe grandparents, grandmothers, you know, people that are that are stakeholders. Like my own family's done that. My brother has had a big vegetable garden. My mother had a had a patch in it. And they would take turns harvesting, watering, weeding if one person wasn't available. It's almost like you're it's like a you're babysitting this. So That's that, a great idea. That level of attention. It's going to it's going to increase its, its chance of success. I have gone on vacation and come back to you know giant zucchinis, like the club, not the right? recent one that died, <laughs> but you know, yeah, where it's, you just sort of look away and there it is. Sometimes they do quite well on their own. Anything else to mention? Really, this there's so much, so much to do with growing your own food and doing it comprehensively, and so this sort of was a a little bit of a taste test of a, of a bunch of different concepts to maybe be aware of. So soil is important, structure is important, sun, the variety that you're going to plant, assessing whether maintenance is right for you or not, and you know, is it going to require a lot of pesticide in order to be successful or maybe a lot of like caustic fertilizer to try to get that perfect store tomato and maybe then mm-hmm. it's not worth it. You know, just go to your farmer's market. So we've touched on a lot of different topics. Is there anything else maybe to mention in this overview before we close out our episode? Doing containers is popular. When I meet with clients, they often the containers often undersized. That the average container, let's say it's like an average pot you'd buy is like 12, 14 inches wide. That's going to dry out really fast. And vegetables and fruits are going to fill that pot so quickly. So having a planter that's oversized. I mean, in that case, almost double what you would imagine would need to be, then it's going to have room to grow. It's going to stay moist. Well, and so you need to be planning for hand watering or be able to set up maybe one of those relatively simple looking, although I haven't set one up myself, the drip irrigation that's like plastic that, you know, you've gotten each pot and it can maybe keep that moist if you're doing the container gardening or maybe even the raised beds, because I imagine those can dry out depending on the climate. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I guess being, keeping an open mind, there's maybe people have their favorite fruits, like blueberries are not the easiest thing. They're so dependent on the soil pH. So that's a plant that does well in a container. And then just opening the aperture and researching other plants like, like currants, there's plants that can be quite easy to grow or raspberries where that becomes sort of like a thicket but then like the structure is very important and thinking about this concept of permaculture that i may put certain items together in in my favorite salad but they may not benefit each other in the garden and so if i if i adjust my thinking a little i can be planting things that are going to cooperate rather than each individually requiring this intensive effort to get them to do what i want them to do right I mean, I can just picture like successful gardens. You might have rosemary is in full sun. That's in a pot, likes it hot and dry. And you have basil that likes it a little shadier and moist. That that could also be in a pot, but in the shade. So you're creating these really micro environments. And then, you know, working with your neighbors, sharing, maybe your neighbor or your family member has different growing conditions. Maybe they're growing figs in containers and that can go a long way. That your favorite food you might not be able to grow, but maybe someone else in your in your garden network can. And I want to give a little shout out to my sister who's out in Boring, Oregon, with a a decent sized 
bit of land there and she's really making it work. I mean, they inherited fruit trees on that property and have since put in raised beds and have chickens. And it's really, I, you know, we don't have that here in our suburban environment, but it's, it's enviable. And mm-hmm. the thought of just going out and, you know, picking breakfast and whipping up your own food is, is there is something really, I guess, romantic. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but there, there is that sense of, you know, real connection to the landscape when you have, when you have it producing food, you're nurturing it and it's nurturing you in return. I mean, some of the trees on her property that are particularly productive and appear pretty low maintenance are plums. Then there's these hybrids, pluots, and then the apricots. So, I mean, those trees are mature, pretty mature and it's almost maintenance free. You just walk out so that they were probably growing, you know, for a dozen years or more. Well, that region of Oregon too is just such a like <laughs> garden. It's growing. Everything grows there. It's so verdant. <laughs> so plants like apples. I mean, those to get a perfect apple, it, there's a lot of intervention. So if you can live with an imperfect apple, or plants like like the plums, apricots, pluot, those are like without pesticides can be quite beautiful and delicious. Great. Well, this was a fun episode. I am hungry. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to wrapping up and and thinking about uh, getting dinner on the table and dreaming of sunny, warm weather next season and getting some things in the ground and seeing what we can grow. So there's the seed catalogs, the nursery catalogs are on their way. That's fun. Study those in the winter. (laughs) Get a a copy of the farmer's almanac and see what might be (laughs) in store for us in terms of the climate and what would grow. So We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please, if you are interested in starting from the beginning and you want a little bit of help with all the information out there, and you can always go to kinggardeninc.com forward slash landscape dash courses. That's the place to check out our online classes and it might not be a fit for everyone, but we do hope you'll take a look and we look forward to presenting our next episode. And if you like what you heard, please uh, rate and review us. (laughs) That's right. We have multiple ways to reach out. You can always find us at kinggardeninc.com forward slash in dash the dash landscape. And there are ways to connect with us by email and social media there. So if you have a garden question that you'd like to send us, feel free. And then do be sure to rate and review us. We're always happy for the feedback. So great to be in studio again. And we look forward to getting out in the landscape. We hope you do as well soon. Thank you. Thanks.